Hello, everybody. This is Joshua Hatton with One Nation Under Whiskey Podcast. I am joined today, and I'm joined as always by my friend, my business partner, my healing brother in arms, Mr. Jason Johnston Yellen. Thank you, Joshua. And and you absolutely keep it fresh in my mind to say thank you to everyone who sent in an email or a text or a message of some other description to to wish me well with mm-hmm. the, the old hernia situation. That was very much appreciated. I, I've had the surgery. All right. They put a camera in through the top of my oh. belly button. Oh, the belly button. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it sounds urological, but it's not urological. It's belly <laughs> they button. Just, they just wanted to see what would happen to your colon while they <laughs> fixed your hernia. <laughs> <laughs> just ran it straight up my pee pee hole just for shits Ooh. and giggles just you know so belly bu- uh, belly button camera and mm-hmm. then incision on the left for fixing and incision on the <laughs> I just got the side bro I was thinking about on this side as people look at me <laughs> <laughs> so if people were looking at you yeah, people are looking at me it would be on their left okay but on my body <laughs> That was operated upon. It's on the right side. Oh, so you're talking um, stage left? Uh, yes. Yes. Okay. Okay. That's <laughs> just to be clear. <laughs> I have no idea why I took on that that role there. And then on my left side, they put in a little incision just to uh-huh. to see how things were looking. And right, l- uh, li- listeners, that's our right, his left. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> And two thumbs way up uh, was the Ooh. verdict, not the procedure. Oh, okay. Procedure. Okay. I thought, it, um, I thought it was back to the colon. No, it's always no, no, to the no, colon no. with you. Always the colon with you. Uh, and um, nope, very, very, uh, very good on the left side. So uh, yeah, so now, now I'm on the mend. Belly button's a little sore. Um, mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm one of those people. I've got a friend who shares this. Uh, with me and so this is why I'm okay putting it on wax because maybe there's listeners out there as well who share this with me Mm -hmm. I do not like having my belly button touched (laughs) (laughs) wow I know all all those times when I've just kind of looked the other way as you've touched my belly button (laughs) I've been very uncomfortable Joshua I thought that was excitement I thought the the heavy breathing and panting was excitement. Nope, I've been looking for the nearest exit to get uh, away from you touching my belly button. So. Wow! So, so yeah, so so it kind of kind of grosses me out having people touch yeah. it or even just belly button things. Huh. So. Can we unpack that a little bit? Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so did the did they did you? Uh, so when you, say. when you were on the table uh, before they got all all stabby at the hospital, um, did they put you under? Did they numb you? Did they? How, how did it all work? I was out like a sack of potatoes. All right, that's a very common expression in Scotland. Like, like a sentient sack of potatoes? <laughs> no, sentient really... sack of flour. Nope. The, the the last thing I remember hearing from the anesthesiologist was, this will burn a little. And then that was that. <laughs> I was completely out. So Wow. 
Okay. Yep. He he did make a brief moment to ask me about single cast nation. Uh, <laughs> really? When I, <laughs> really? When I first went into surgery, yeah. <laughs> he was he was a little curious, like most people are. Like, oh, you you want a distillery? And so I I gave him the, the. It used to be the elevator pitch. Now it's the um, operating room pitch. <laughs> of, of no, we. <laughs> We source casks from established distilleries, bottle them under our brand. And you say, oh, that, that sounds very interesting. Yeah. And then he said, this is going to burn a little. And that was the end of that. So, wow. no, I okay. was not present for that at all. And that's called laparoscopic surgery, right? Look at you. Look at you. Yeah. Yeah. Pulling out your $10 words this <laughs> early in the podcast, you. Oh, I know. You know what helped me? Got a little... Catoctin Creek whiskey in my glass. Oh, I that's a coincidence because I also have Catoctin Creek whiskey <laughs> in my glass. Can I tell you? So it makes sense. <laughs> no, it, you can't. I can't tell you. <laughs> Fuck. Um, Nobody wants to hear this, Joshua. <laughs> <laughs> well, it makes sense that that's what we have in our glass because we're we're speaking with uh, Becky and Scott Harris, the the owners and of the distillery, the distillers, the everything. But, you know, it's interesting. I know you've got Catoctin Creek. So backing it up. Yay! Hey. <laughs> so we each have a uh, single cast nation Catoctin Creek, but you have the legendary two-year-old. Yes. Yes. And the one that many people slept on. And then once it was sold out, desperately, desperately wanted a bottle of it. Yeah. I desperately, desperately want a bottle of it because I can't seem to find mine. Mm. However, thankfully, (laughs) 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 thankfully, sorry, sorry, that was not that was not brotherly. I apologize. No, thanks a lot, fucker. Um, I do have our three-year-old, which I quite love, and it's very important that I tell you this. You know how you could have bottles that you've had opened for years, right? And yes, sir. you have memories of what that whiskey tasted like. One of my favorite aspects. Right. And so this, our three-year-old came out in March of 2015. So a little over three years. Hmm. And the notes on the label say waxy and bright with blackberry tea on the nose, pronounced rye spice in the mouth, and a satisfying bread pudding-like finish. I remember creating those notes. I was yep. in the company of scott harris for that one and i remember discovering all of those notes however this is probably the first time i've tasted this in maybe six eight months and i got a note i had never gotten on this whiskey before and it is so very specific Mm -hmm. count chocula okay I, it's funny because there are, <laughs> there are different moments when you will go classic American cereal on me. Oh, I know. And that doesn't mean anything to you. Nothing at all. Mm. Nothing. And as an adult, I'm certainly not going to go and revisit cereals yes, you are. of your youth. Two weeks ago. <laughs> two weeks ago. Two weeks ago. I was tasting a Beaumore. That mm-hmm. I could have sworn had fruity pebbles on it. So you know what I did? For the first time in 10 years, I bought a box of fruity oh, pebbles. no, 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 no. <laughs> first off, they're gluten-free. You'll be happy to know. 
Secondly, because because there's nothing in them. It's just chemicals <laughs> created in the laboratory. Secondly, I came to find out that my memory of Fruity Pebbles was wrong because that note was was dead wrong. See, that's but, why that's why all it's the same point you just made about the whiskey. OK, you're tasting the memory of Fruity Pebbles from when you were eight or 10 or 12 you're not tasting Fruity Pebbles now as a 55-year-old man. Like, <laughs> you <laughs> it's been 45 years since you ate Fruity Pebbles. <laughs> and that's why when you say to me, Chalk countula, count chocula. I don't know, what did you just chalk, say? Chalk countula, chalk, yeah, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Chun, chun ocular. Um, <laughs> chun? It doesn't, chun? <clears throat> chocula? It doesn't mean anything to me. And even if I went and picked up a box of it, it wouldn't be the same experience. It's the memory of Count Chocula that you're tasting in there. Well, the and that's fine. That's yeah. that's all right. I'm not, not getting on you for that. I'm glad we're discussing tasting notes because it's something Becky returns to several times in today's podcast. Oh, and, that's very true. And that's very uh, true. I'll, I'll, I'll say no more than that. Mm -hmm. um, I would throw in for the listeners, uh, you just mentioned, <laughs> I think this is a good moment for us to reflect as well. Now that we're into selling out casks and 39 minutes and three minutes and 15 yeah. minutes, it, it's good to know that when you just said we bottled that three years ago, there are literally eight bottles of that sitting in our warehouse. Oh. For, for sale. It's on yeah. our website. Or should we be selling this? Because I kind of want it. <laughs> uh, I've, I've got a bottle I can give you. All right. Thank you. I've, I've, I've shipped a fair few into Virginia. Yeah. So we're down to eight on it. And that's, that's three years. Oh my it's gosh. kind of it's a funny part of the business. So stinking good. Yeah. It's, you know, and I... I think in part it's it's getting back to people looking at an age statement. And we've talked about this before, right, where we've poured Westland two-year-old. And we don't show them the label. We just say, this is Westland. And whether it was the, the peated cherried one or the new charred oak unpeated one, and people will be, you know, over the moon, and then you show them the label and says, ooh, it's only two years old. Do you have anything older? Like, you just loved it three seconds ago. 100%. I actually want to flip over to the interview for just a moment because Scott and I were discussing that exact same aspect. It would be cool to diverge into this topic for just a minute. Please, yeah. The, um, you know, we were talking Please. earlier about the aging and, and all of that, and, and we were having a conversation about the relative youthful age of American whiskeys. And, um, and one of the interesting things that we talked about was the fact that, um, you know, we, we, if we taste these whiskeys in a blind setting, and that's usually how they're judged when we're on, say, the San Francisco World Spirits Competition or something like that. They're judged blindly. We're winning double golds, and we're having customers go, my God, that tastes like an 18-year-old scotch. Yeah. Right? That's amazing. <laughs> and then you bring out the age, and you say, well, that's a three-year-old whiskey. And people are like, oh, <laughs> how can that be? You know? Well, and they're disappointed. Older. Right. And so the frustration <laughs> I was sharing with Jason yeah. is in the tasting room, you know, I'll have somebody who's tasted our stuff for the first time, and they're simply over the moon about it. They're, oh, my God, this is the best whiskey I've ever tasted in my life. When will it be older? Yeah. And, and, and it's, it's a stab in the chest. It's like, well, you just said it was the best. And so what we... 
really want to express is that you know we're building a whiskey that is purposefully designed to have this grain-forward quality and be presented as a youthful whiskey. If it was to be older, it would get bitter, it would get tannic, and it wouldn't be as nice as what it is today. We, if we're going to make it older, we're going to distill it differently. And so yes. if this is purpose-driven purpose purpose-driven whiskey, and it's presented at the exact age that we feel it's best. You were hitting it earlier, Scott, where we talked about in Scotland where you're looking at over 18 years, something very different is happening in Scotland than is going to happen in Virginia or is going to happen in Kentucky Absolutely. or is going to happen in India or Malaysia. It's going to be completely different. Right. And to, to use the marker that we've been trained to use around scotch... And, which is incorrect, mm -hmm. and apply that to other whiskies right. around the world is nonsense. Right. And so the fact there's so much more going on behind the scenes than just you distill spirit mm -hmm. of a day that goes into a cask, and it would be great if you could leave it in for 12 years, but oh, what a shame, you have to bottle it after two or three or four is Enti Hogwash. Entirely misses the point. Right. Entirely misses the point. Because as Americans, we are marketing-wise lazy, and we've all boiled down to age, and that we've been trained by the scotch industry. 12 must be better than 10. 35 18, must be even better than Right, and if you can get your hands on that pappy, well, you're in real good shape, you know, <laughs> and all this kind of business. Mm -hmm. And it has no appreciation for the subtleties of recipe and mash bill and grain and fermentation and all of that kind of stuff that also counterbalances against the wood that's in there. <laughs> it's funny that we're talking about age. I, I drove up to see Scott and Becky and interview them for the podcast. Mm -hmm. And as I want to do, I, I took a few bottles with me. I like to let them see what we're up to with Single Cast Nation. Oh, nice. Uh, you know, when I'm up there catching up on the latest on Catoctin Creek. Mm -hmm. And one of our new retail releases is the, the Invergarden. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the reason that I'd taken it through for them to, to taste is because it's my, my very birth month, uh, June of, of 74. And <laughs> who's 55 now? <laughs> <laughs> 60, mother lover. Um, and, so, and so here I am pouring this very old grain whiskey. Yeah. And, and Scott and I were talking about it being bright and fresh and a lot of those Scottish grain notes mm. that are kind of orange creamsicle and orange spice and all that yeah, sure, sure. Are, are very much prevalent and it, it's funny because I don't drink a lot of older whiskey I like younger more youthful whiskies and so it's I, I don't take it along to to show off I just take it along because I, I think it's an example of good whiskey mm. with, mm -hmm. with good maturation mm -hmm. and and certainly one of the things in discussion with Scott and Becky is they're specifically designing whiskey to be consumed at an age yes. that fits with their 30 gallon barrel maturation that fits with the Virginia climate that fits with their business plan allows them to keep the doors open and the lights on and as Scott just said in, in that portion that we played there it doesn't make sense to say oh, this is great at two, this is great at three. Wow, I'd love to drink it at 18. It's a completely different whiskey. Yeah. Uh, and we've, we've been having that conversation with different producers 
throughout our episodes of One Nation Under Whiskey. Mm-hmm. But it goes to show how well we've been brainwashed with older is better. Oh, yeah. And, and completely dismisses the fact that different distilleries are building purposefully different whiskies, different types of whiskies. Yeah, yeah. He also made the comment, and I, I don't know if it was just in the part we'll, we've played or it's about to come up in the part we'll, we're about to play, but I, I, it's something I certainly hadn't thought about, where he talked about a lot of rye coming from the same powerhouse distillery, a distillery that you and I love and have bottled <laughs> bourbon from and light whiskey from. And, and rye and, from. And, yeah. and rye from, right? And the, the point that Scott makes is when you taste that product that's under multiple different brands and you think these are multiple different ryes and they're all the same ryes being grown from grain at all the same farms. Yeah, yep. The, the, it's, it's so interesting to think oh no, I, I know the rye category, when really what you know is one powerhouse distillery. And, and you know, they now talking to Scott and Becky are now talking about the farms from whom they're buying in Kansas. Yes, yeah, four and, different ones, right? Yeah, and, yeah. And, what, and what that does to the flavor profile of the grain that they're fermenting and the spirit that they're distilling and the mm-hmm. spirit that they're maturing, it's a wonderful way to think of it and I think gives credence to why we need craft. Does it in any way give uh, any like clear water revival along with that credence or is it just straight up credence? <laughs> Let's go to people saying sensible, interesting things. <laughs> We're really just starting to describe it this way is talking about our 100% rye mash bill coming from four different tour- mm-hmm. sources and the complexities that come from that and that, maybe that's something that you really would like to talk about because I think it's pretty interesting yeah yeah you know initially when we started it was um, you know just finding organic grain was was difficult mm-hmm. and so you know being able to get to the point where we have multiple sourcings and what we found as we went ahead and started to um expand was every time we would do a separate barrel that was 100% of a particular um, rye from a particular place. And so that would give us the opportunity to kind of look at that particular spirit from that grain and see where we were with that. And what we kind of came to realize was that each one had its, you know, its own little flavor nuances that really brought some different things like um, one of our Virginia producers, it was just super soft, just so soft. It was like unaged. It was almost not even, it was, I'm trying to think of good descriptive words for it, which is not my forte, (laughs) Um, but it was just really soft and just airy on the palate. And so as you know, that aged, it kind of grew and really changed and brought some other notes to the party and that was really a lot of fun Hmm. and so what we started to do was kind of create a mash bill that was you know um say 40 48 percent from a given farm and 
30% from another farm and then, you know, 20% from yet the other and kind of get a balance there of what's being brought. And that was really a, a kind of a, a neat thing. And that's kind of where we're settled in right now is we like this, we like this, and we like this. And that proportionality is really kind of dialed in that's wonderful to where we want it to be as far as you know you could say it's terroir or variety whatever it's all those things playing into flavor well it's certainly one of the things for us that's missing in scotland is it's it's simply um a a commercial property that you bring in the source of your sugar Mm -hmm. and you you malt it and you mash it you distill it and it makes no difference to the product that goes into cask and ultimately into bottle. And one of the things that I've loved the most about the American craft movement, and I don't know how comfortable you are with craft being thrown around like that. We yeah. can, we it's can, we can, the word everybody right? uses. Right. We, we can For discuss, lack of a better word. Right. Yeah. Yeah, we, we can discuss that at some point if you like. And put, some, put some leaves on those branches. But, but it's, it's amazing to me that we go from an empty commodity that's just there to get sugar from to the way you're speaking about it, which is, no, it has a particular uh, flavor. It has a particular role to play within a larger mash bill. Uh, that's, that's really tremendous to hear. With different flavors in mind, and, and before we go to something that I found quite interesting, which was you know them starting to incorporate some Virginia oak uh, along yeah. with their Missouri oak, so I do want to get there. Yeah, that was unexpected. Yeah, yeah, I, I didn't. I, I really like what they were looking, what they're looking to do there with the different types of wood. So I, I want to get there, but before we get there, I'm tasting the Catoctin Creek three-year-old, and you've got the two-year-old, mm-hmm. and for the most part, the makeup is the same. Yet there's some big differences there. So I talked about Count Chocula. I read the the, the label notes on the bottle. What are you getting out of the two-year-old that, yeah, that ju- really ju- jumps at you? Just to frame it with the label notes since you read them on the three-year-old, here we say an intense rye profile, mm-hmm. yellow and red fruits intertwine with herbal notes, beguiling oily texture, mm-hmm. and warm toffee flavors. And this was one of the places for me and I know we're going to get to this stuff about wood, but Becky and I were having a conversation, you know, to, towards the end of our time together, where I think Catoctin Creek tastes a little bit like a like I imagine a rye to taste that was distilled in Scotland. And hmm. it's that presence of toffee. It's that herbal quality to it. And it's definitely the texture. Well, the texture and, for sure, yeah. Right? And so one of the things that we found pretty easy to sell about this Catoctin Creek release is we were single cast nation who'd made a name for ourselves bottling scotchies. Mm-hmm. And as much as, yes, we came out with a, a single barrel rye whiskey, I think it spoke to people with a, a scotch palate. Do you think that that's us or do you think that that's rye in general? No, I've I've had rye that that taste particularly American to me, like the the big dill notes. Mm. Really think make me think of American terroir. Okay, absolutely. Yeah. Um. Sometimes when the rice, the rice, 
that's what happens when you create a portmanteau from rye and spice. (laughs) 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 Unfortunately, it has its own meaning. That's the word Uh, of the podcast, by the way, portmanteau. I like that. (laughs) And so sometimes the rye spice Mm. of certain American releases again, speaks to American terroir for me. So no, I, I don't think the category as a whole has overtures of Scotland, but I think when designed in a particular way, and and I and, you know, we'll play the audio before we get to the part we're getting to, mm. of Becky talking about where their influence came from, how yeah, she yeah. thinks about whiskey. Yeah. Uh, let, Let's hear from Becky right now. But I also have always had the feeling that I know that you were both on a trip to Scotland, inspired by Glenn Murray, mm-hmm. came back, opened up Catoctin Creek. As much as you've been making 100% rye with your brandies, with your gins, um, your rye has always, for me, had a nod of Scotland about it. I've always felt that way. <laughs> I like Speyside. Right? When I drink a Speyside scotch, it's like those kind of, kind of, fruity, nutty things are kind of, I feel like they're there in my whiskey. And that's, I was always a fan. You know, when you come to Scotch, it's only in the past year that I've been trying to get myself to really like the Smoky Isla stuff. I know Mm. some of you are going, what? Uh But the truth is, it's like that is kind of an education of the palate that I was where I was at when we started this was all about, I love the space side, I love the fruits and and the the nutty flavors Mm -hmm. and so that was really what I designed this round stone to be was kind of if you will a space slide version of rye and so to me that kind of connection to Scotland and maybe that's where that kind of pot still being building this with pot stills and the ability that pot stills have to help you select flavors you know it's not Fermentation creates flavors, distillation selects flavors, and the pot still allows that selection. Okay. And that's really what I like to talk about as being the role of, of my team is we are here to select the flavors that we create via the fermentation. So your question was, what jumps out to me in the two-year-old? And and in hearing from Becky there and, and given what I said in the lead up to Becky's words, there, there's definitely a, a texture to it. There's definitely a more northernly Scotland presence to it. Mm. And it sold great guns. People absolutely loved it. Uh, and even to the point yeah. where people remain in search of it. And uh, let me see. You said we bottled the three-year-old in 2015. Yeah. And we bottled the two-year-old April of 2014. Okay. What this tells me is we should really be looking to bottle another Catoctin Creek whiskey. So if Scott and Becky are listening, (laughs) (laughs) I'll be flying down to Dullis shortly and we'll see what can be found. I've been been telling you to do that for years. I'll I'll pick you up in Dulles. Uh-huh. Well, hang out at my house. I've got uh-huh. something like four distilleries an hour and three quarters from my house. Uh-huh. We could make a good podcast, single cast nation time of it over here. Um, you know what I've been telling you for years? Oh, gosh. That this is probably about New Haven pizza. That would be my guess. Because <laughs> I know you've you, been telling me about that for years. You no, know, I don't even have to. I don't even have to mention that. 
New Haven Pizza, best pizza in the world. Boom, there you go. Uh, but no, what I have been telling you for years is that Catoctin Creek uses unmalted rye. Oh, okay, we've reached this part of the podcast. Yeah, Joshua hates unmalted rye. Does he? Yeah. Yeah, you have to tell him he's been drinking it all along. <laughs> I, no, I got that wrong. See, malted? Um, he, he hates malted rye. Mm. And so I would always say to him, but you like Catoctin Creek. And, and he would say, well, okay, I like Catoctin Creek rye. <laughs> Yeah, but, no. But you're 100% unmalted. Aren't yeah, you? we. My mind. Well, see, it shows I like that. The I would now. just like to say that shows that Joshua has been correct all along. Mm-mm. That is getting cut. That will, <laughs> that will not be in there. Just so you know. I would just like to say that it shows that Joshua has been correct all along. I would just like to say that it shows that Joshua has been correct all along. Right? Um, Be- because I have a particular uh, <laughs> dislike, um, I stay away from, I am abhorred by malted rye. It's only a throwaway comment from Scott over the course of the interview, but he, it seemed, go on. he, yeah. he hypothesizes, just I, I was mentioning some of that bigger dill, bigger herbal component to some American uh, whiskeys, American rye. He was hypothesizing that malted rye, given that you've got a little bit of germination there, given that you've got a bit of sprouting going on there, mm-hmm. he hypothesizes that that's where more of the herbal comes from. It, it could be, but if we're thinking of MGP, it's mm. 95% unmalted rye, 5% malted barley. So, and that's where some of the biggest pickly notes come from is your mm. LDI MGP rye. Mm. Uh, and herbaceousness definitely comes from malted rye, but it's typically the herbaceousness that you find in like a, you know, a, a four day old dirty diaper. You know, it's it's something that kind of herbaceousness after your baby has had, you know, squash the you know the, the the pureed squash and then the your baby shits in the goddamn diaper and then you leave it in the the diaper champ and then four days later you come back and you open it up and that's unmalt and that's malted rye. Just one question. Yeah. One question. Mm-hmm. Can you hear the words coming out of your mouth right now? <laughs> <laughs> I, I have headphones in, so I've got no idea what I've been saying. Okay. Okay. Because yeah. my my great hope is that the listeners are, are looking <laughs> sideways at their car speakers, uh, their phone, uh-huh, and their uh-huh. breast pocket. Like, I, I, I want people to be seriously questioning what you just committed to wax there. Well, they, they should be, because I'm personally, I don't like unmalted rye. Do other people like unmalted rye? Some people love it, and good for them. I just don't like it. I thought you liked unmalted, but you didn't like malted. Fuck. Let's start that again. (laughs) (laughs) You're so high on diaper shit right now. You have no idea what you're saying. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, it's it's malted rye. I I am a fan of unmalted rye. Malted rye, just the, the, the spirit that comes from that... The flavors just do not sit on my palate. Um, this is this is a this is a dodgy way of asking the question, because it would suggest that you're about to name brands that you don't like. But 
which I would for never our, do. For our listeners, could mm-hmm. you th- just throw out some brands who are using malted barley, given that what you're now saying is that if MGP is 95% unmalted rye, yeah. then a lot of the brands our listeners are drinking are going to be right up your alley, my alley. Uh, I also like malted ryes, you know that. I, um, yeah. Who who would be some of the brands on a shelf that would be these malted ryes? Well, perfect perfect example of a whiskey that that I just don't like, but you love is Old Potrero. Oh, such a fun fun whiskey. Yeah, like you you enjoy it, and for me, it just it doesn't do anything for me. Yeah, yeah. Like, what do you find in the malted rye? What do you find in that whiskey that you like? I love that it's wacky. I love how yeah. how far out of left field it comes, mm-hmm. and it's big, it's bold, it's highly alcoholic. In terms of the flavors, I I pick up a, a certain orange quality from it, which is why I continually put it in front of you, and why I'm continually surprised that you don't like it, because it's that kind of it's almost an orange marmalade quality to it. That I think is really delightful. <laughs> so there, there actually is a malted rye, Jason. Yes, that I like. I feel like this should be in the breaking news segment. This should I hold on to it? <laughs> All right, here we go. Come on, where's that paper boy? All right, get over here. I did find a malted rye that I liked, and I did not expect to like it at all. Do you remember when Ollie was in town, Ollie Chilton? I do, I do, I do. Right, right? and we're traveling around Connecticut. We stopped at some place called The Bear and The Bear and Its Kill. I don't know I the name of it. Its <laughs> Kill. There's no way it was called that. <laughs> The bear and its victims, um, <laughs> and anyway, they had they had old Petrero rye, and then they had this this uh, it's called Zuadam, which is a Dutch rye. And as I understand, given that it, you're almost certainly mispronouncing that, how is it, it spelled? Okay, Zuadam. So it starts with an L. <laughs> it's a uh, it's Z U I D A M. Judam, Zuadam. I, I like I like the way you just did Jadam. I like that. That's even yeah. if that's completely wrong. I like the way that sounds. So there you go. Uh, and and I quite liked that rye. So I don't know the details. I don't know if it's one hundred percent malted rye or if it's a portion of malted rye or or or, or what the deal is. But I didn't hate it. I kind of liked it. Can you give us one more American malted? Rye? Yes. There's another malted rye called, I think it's Five Fathers. Yeah, Five Fathers. Five Fathers rye, which is 100% malted rye. Okay. I think they're sourcing it now, but the the name came from the old Pogue distillery, uh, which was around in the late 1800s, which is defunct. Anyway. Okay. So there you go. Cool. So you have now managed to stick it in my face. 
that Catoctin Creek use 100% unmalted rye. Unmalted Have rye. always used 100% unmalted rye. And I, for years, have been mistaken in telling you that it's one of the malted ryes that you like. Yes. Have I owned mistaken. that enough for you? You have owned it. Thank you for owning it. So moving past that, uh, for, for the purposes... Well, could we... No, no, let's keep moving. Yeah, no, no, no. I, I want to move, but... Remember you mentioned wood policy. I did mention Many, wood many moons ago, yeah, when yeah, we were yeah. butt boys recording this episode. Oh, I remember that. That was a long time ago. Scott and Back Bill. when we were young boys. Nary a pubic hair on our pubis. Of the commitment to locality. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. are now mm-hmm. playing around with Virginia oak. I found that fascinating. And um, yeah. rather than you and I yep. rambling back and forth, we've we've taken up plenty of time here. Let's go over to Becky and probably Scott, since he's part of the conversation. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. Always. Talking about this new wood experiment, and we have a little taste of some experiments. We've started working with uh, another uh, barrel manufacturer, and one of the reasons why um, the, the salesperson, when she came and was talking to me really got my attention was that she was able to bring um, Virginia Virginia oak into the uh, equation for us. Oh, wow. Yeah, we've always used Minnesota oak um, and 30-gallon barrels. That's what we use. Um, This one was, uh, this one she actually had, um, we started working with it first time last fall. So this is young, young whiskey. It's nowhere near ready yet. Okay. But it is, um, we had... Two barrels we filled side by side. One was Minnesota oak, one is Virginia oak. Um, And so this is some samples, some barrel samples we took after seven months. So we can do a a blind, sort of, not blind, but What um, we wanted to, what I wanted to do was see, okay, are they similar A, so that we're not changing the entire ball game um, of the flavor with our whiskey, but does does it taste better or worse to my palate, our collective palates as a group in the distillery and what we wanted to do? Which one's which That's here? Minnesota. Okay. And that's Virginia. That's Virginia. And, mm-hmm. and then I kept mine on the right for Virginia. Yes. Mm-hmm. So same. So, so by comparison then, as she said, these are pretty young, but they're you get definitely a good, young, yeah. You know, yeah. apples to apples comparison. And the Minnesota then would be representative of what we have currently on the market. Right. And then we were kind of wanting to see, okay, is this something we wanted to do, move toward incorporating more and more Virginia oak until such time as maybe we're all Virginia oak. Yeah, yeah. Um, especially working with the uh, with working with the new with this um, supplier, you know, it may take a little while to ramp that up, but we definitely are very super interested in going there. I think the flavor is great. Do you know how they treat the oak? Chard number three. Okay, char number three. Do you know what we do? Middle char, yeah. They have different numbers. Yeah. <laughs> Pass me the water. Mm-hmm. This water. So when you stick your nose into the Minnesota, does that smell like the Catoctin Creek you've yeah. been yeah. smelling since yeah. 2009? I don't know how long yeah, you've been using Minnesota. Yeah, 2010 is when yeah. it's been on the market. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. So that, that's familiar to you. Mm-hmm. When you then stick your nose into the Virginia oak... I thought the nose was different. 
to me. It was like a little more... Leather. I got leather. Leather is what you're thinking of? I found it a little different. I liked it. That night I spent with Sandra Bernhardt. Oh, boy. <laughs> You're welcome to say as much as Sandra <laughs> Bernhardt allows you to say. So. Uh, I don't remember much more than that. <laughs> you just remember the leather and then The leather out. and then that was the end of it. She gave me something to drink. Roofies. <laughs> Probably be the other way around. <laughs> I should be so lucky. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I mean. <laughs> It's, it's very good. You can definitely tell they're both very grain forward, obviously. At seven yeah. months old, there's a lot of grain right. they're going not, on there. They're not, like, ready to go by it's, any means. Um, but. but they're sweet and they're drinkable. I mean, this would qualify for a good whiskey in other distilleries. The, um, the, I would say the Virginia one, to me, tastes maybe a little more sour. Yeah, I know. I was trying to figure out what I... When we tasted it um, the other week... I'm trying to remember exactly what it was that... And if I'm trying to associate sour, I'm, I'm thinking of citrus, obviously, yeah. but not not vinegar. No, it was, it was more of zest for me. Yeah, zest. The Minnesota, I feel, is more uh, oak presence to it. The Virginia seems to allow a little bit more of the, the grain to come by. I know one of you was I talking about perhaps so, powers. yeah. There is definitely a spiciness in there. I thought that was incredibly interesting. Uh, Absolutely. Fact, right? The, the fact that different wood grown in different states could do different things. I know Matt Hoffman talked about it a little bit, that you can even have differences in the, in the tree itself, depending on how and where that tree is growing. But I've got a question for you. When tasting the Virginia oak versus the Missouri oak, and the two are obviously different, do you feel the differences that you would find from cask to cask? Or do you feel the wood definitely plays a massive part in the in these in these two different whiskeys? It it struck me that the foundational components of each seven month old matured spirit mm -hmm. were different. Mm. And that to me spoke more of wood origin mm -hmm. than it did of just sister casks doing things completely different. Okay. Fair enough. Did yeah, I, I, I firmly bought into it when I was tasting the two of them. What's, you know, I think where we all need to be careful is mm -hmm. given the wood that Catoctin Creek have been maturing in for the past nine years, when we now show up with some Virginia oak, mm. it's hard to now say, oh, this... This is, you know, so different, right? Yeah. If if you're if you're a producer and you have a brand <laughs> and you're looking <laughs> yeah. to make some change, yeah. you don't want it to be a wholesale change. You want to bring in some locality. You want to bring in another aspect to your product, but you don't want to completely change it. And and so I, I think there's there's care being taken there that mm. it's not now, oh, Virginia trumps all Missouri. It's going to have to be uh, Virginia is going to do something that we will grow into, that we will, you know, start to see a, a subtle change in Catoctin Creek as a brand. Yeah, it, it'll be interesting 
following that journey to see if it becomes a slow yet wholesale change or if they find as the whiskey gets older, the differences are so much so that it becomes, you know, similar to Westland's Gariana, this here is the Virginia Oak kind of thing. So they can show, you know, there's the spirit itself is beautiful. So they can show what the spirit is doing in Virginia versus Missouri Oak. And that was part of Becky's point as we were tasting through it is this is seven months old. Yeah. You know, she's she's liked it enough to place an order mm-hmm. to continue really what is an ongoing experiment and to see if she'll ultimately be in a position where they are using Virginia Oak. Yeah. Seven months is only beginning to give us the suggestion of an answer on what's going to happen with Oak yeah, at Catoctin Creek. So it's I, I have to tell you, though, I was absolutely honoured that I got to be part of that seven-month tasting. Uh, and That's to very put cool. The two yeah. different Oaks side by side, that was wonderful. Yeah. So thank you to them for, for bringing me into that inner circle. Yeah, I only wish I could have been there. Um, uh, you know, we, we're all right. <laughs> I now have so much recording equipment. I'm not. I, I might even take back my invitation for you to come to Virginia. Wow! <laughs> wow! <laughs> I tell you, I'm hurt. I'm hurt, Jason. I'm that, hurt was, that, was, that was not necessary. <laughs> to make to make it up to you, I've poured myself another whiskey. I saw you with a bottle. Just as we're um, talking about special releases mm-hmm. from Catoctin Creek, mm-hmm. and we'll we'll play a little bit of audio in, in just a second. But this is from a few years ago now, maybe a couple of years ago. What Catoctin Creek did was they sent their ex-rye barrels off to a maple syrup producer in the DC area. Nice. And and he put his maple syrup into the ex-rye barrel. That maple syrup is unbelievably good. (laughs) (laughs) I can imagine. So amazing. And then once that producer had emptied the barrel of his maple syrup, he sent it back to the distillery and they put Catoctin Creek rye into the X maple syrup barrel. Did they put... Just for a finishing. I don't know if that's your question. Yeah, so, just, yeah, just for so a that finishing. Was a, yeah, if it was new make spirit that they put in. No, just or, for a finishing. Okay. Yeah. And so th- this whiskey, and I bought this at the distillery, uh, actually the last time I saw Scott and Becky, it's incredible. It's got that wonderful rye presence. Mm. And the maple syrup is there, not overwhelming on the nose at all. Yeah. And then as you drink it, the maple syrup just occupies the back of the palate. Oh, nice. Yeah. It oh, is, nice, it's, nice, nice, nice. You know, when you see this big sticker on it saying finished in a single barrel, a, a single maple syrup barrel, you think that's going to have a lot of maple syrup going on. Yeah. And the balance that Becky got in it is really wonderful. Really, that's nice. Yeah, re- really impressive. So I, I'm thoroughly enjoying this one now and and uh, I had the chance to taste an upcoming special when I was with Scott and Becky and so here's a little taste of that. 
Which brings us to the next whiskey. Yeah, we might as well oh, go ahead and the, taste that the next The next one. whiskey then is being poured from the Pyrex. Yes, here. because I had to pull a sample. We're actually proofing this right now, getting it ready to bottle. Um, we're going to release it third quarter this year. We have, well, I'm guessing, I was looking at it, and I think Chad winced when I showed it to him yesterday, was I was like, it's about 35 cases. Okay. In yeah. what, Super 35 small states? Yeah, what, what um, <laughs> this, tell them what this is then. So this is essentially, um, this is some, um, this is some, essentially, a, it, I believe it was a year old. I'm trying to remember because I've been looking at so many barrels this week. But um, it's about a year old um, whiskey that was finished in Chardu Oak. And now this particular one has spent three years in, our in a used brandy barrel. So that was a barrel. We make a Virginia brandy. We use it using, we age that brandy two years in um, first fill Bordeaux barrels. Um, then after we dump the brandy, I will put in um, the, whiskey. the whiskey. So that basically after the two-year aging period of the brandy, I dumped it out, filled it with one-year-old round stone, and it sat for three years. Mm -hmm. So this is, cast. yeah. So, so what we is do right is we, we, we stop the development of the tannins and the aggressive wood on the first barrel, right? And then we impart more long-term oxidization and, you know, some of that subtler stuff that takes yeah. a longer yeah. bit of time. So this would then be about four years old. Yes, total, total, yep. Uh, brownstone rye, cask proof, finished in a Virginia brandy barrel. brandy barrel. Virginia grape brandy yep. barrel. Yep, Virginia brandy barrel. So until now, we have been talking about flavors, where those flavors are coming from, whether it's the rye, yes, right? Yes, sir. Um, or the wood or malted versus unmalted rye, etc. But what we haven't talked about, and this is something that, you know, you and I have heard from, not just from them, but other producers of rye, that the rye grain itself is an incredibly difficult grain to deal with. And, and I found that Catoctin Creek's overall, you know, the, their process of, of producing rye whiskeys, I don't know if it's unique, but it sure as hell is interesting. Definitely interesting. Absolutely. I, I want, and this bit is, I think is going to be a little longer than some of the other ones. Um, so is there anything that you wanted to interject here before we go over to that bit of tape? No, not in the slightest. We talked about Chad a little bit. Oh, uh, that's right. <laughs> and him not being present at the interview. I know what it's like, Chad. I know what well, it's like. I'd spoken with Chad for, for many, many, many months about going through and discussing distillation with Becky Harris. Mm -hmm. And to finally be there recording and listening to her was every bit as rewarding as I thought it was going to be. Yeah, yeah. And so I want to get that on wax before we jump over to Becky. While we're nosing this, talk to us a little bit about your distillation process. Has a lot changed since you started distilling no. to the night where you not are? Not really, no. no. You know, it's we've got a, we got a bigger still um, in 2013, which was steam powered for the first time. I love steam, I love steam so much. What was the so one much before? power, electric. it's electric. Oh, okay. So it was like a, essentially a double boiler. So you're heating up the water bath that heats up the, gotcha. the, um, the mash. And you know what, it, Barney, that's our little still that we started with, 100-gallon still. 
love love Barney. Barney's just been a workhorse, but when we got Ron and that power, the power of steam, it's like, oh. It's um, amazing. You can bring um, a thousand liters of mash to boil in 30 minutes. Wow. It's just incredible. Yeah, fast. it's very, very good. So we've been so using energy. that and basically kind of trying to, to replicate what we did in Barney for those years. Mm-hmm. Um, at this point now, actually, we're making whiskey um, in both um, Barney and Ron, because um, you know our our business plan calls for us to lay down a lot more. So we've while we're looking for and in the market shopping for a new still, a bigger still, um, we are we are currently then adding Barney back into the mix a couple days a week, which is why you saw so much action in there. Today is the day. Thursday is the day a week that we actually run. We actually will cycle um, our small still twice, our big still once, and we mash twice. Oh, fantastic. So it's... So you're here on two shift Tuesday. Yeah, oh, two, two shift, shift Thursday. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're getting ready probably as soon as, uh, as, soon as Greg and I finish um, transferring all the old barrels out of the, the old barn into our, our, our larger warehouse, we're probably going to have two shift Thursday and two shift Tuesday because go. we need to add still more. Well, we don't we don't have time to wait for the new um, bigger still. We have to move, so we're getting ready. At the, at, my people are amazing. They're doing they're doing a great job. Do, do you ever talk about how many barrels you lay down in a day or barrels in a week? Do you ever talk about that? Um, not. I mean, really, we we lay down approximately. On on my big still, it's about one and a half barrels a day. Okay. Of of if I'm going for um, yeah, it's about one and a half barrels a day in a thirty gallon barrel. It's almost a full fifty three. Yeah. Not quite. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. So you know we're we're we are going to the next the next um, iteration is going to be we will probably. Um, retire Barney, sell him off to someone else who's starting up and, you know, and have that be, but, but then get a bigger still to replace Barney and move toward um, having that be the primary still. And then uh, Ron will be our, our utility as we need more growth, kind of pulled him in. So we'll get a bigger mash tank um, because right now it's, it's just getting to be really hard on the you know the the current production staff as far as running more and more it just becomes difficult. Do you get to that point where having bigger allows you to um, not quite calm down how things work, but you're then on a scale where you have a, a routine in place that's not running them right. crazy hard. Right, not re- running my people to death exactly, and that's where we are now. Is is and that is a matter of fact in the midterm midtime before we get the the larger still that's why i'm being dragged in a lot more because of that kind of demand i don't want to add a lot of people that then i won't need yes. to keep yes. you know the big still ron mm-hmm. um you've had a paddle in it that operates during distillation. And that's correct, and, and that's just Stirs. agitation. It's like stirring a boiling pot on the stove. You get better um, 
homogeneity of heat through the through the liquid when you stir it, right? Okay. That's all that's about. What's the name of your style of still? Because you're neither pot nor column. Yeah, I've heard it's like a hybrid. A and a column. Yeah, we call I've... it a hybrid pot column still, or okay. you could abbreviate it just to say a German still, because yeah, most of the German stills German. are of this design. Yeah. Okay. Okay. The, um, it has the advantage, I mean, it's definitely a pot still in that the mash is in there cooking for an entire cook time. So nine yeah. hours, all that grain is in there extracting alcohol, but also creating like a French flavor. press, you know, it's creating flavor, you're cooking it, it's getting richer, you're extracting those congeners okay. and things are happening while it's in there. There's a chemical process that lasts for nine hours during that. What I, um, what I like to do with that is to use the ability of the column. The column is pretty flexible, so I can bypass plates or engage plates to create more reflux or less. So for our typical roundstone, I use fair, uh, full reflux. And uh, when we do our four-year-old bottled and bond product, that's our rabble rouser, um, that is, um, I take, I, I bypass those okay. and I start to provide less reflux. So it's like got more chewy notes um, just because I know it's going to be in the barrel for four years. Awesome. The, um, awesome. It, it basically gives us some flexibility too as a small producer. You know, um, the Scottish uh, production process of two times distilled, you know, we can achieve that in one distillation with the column, yes. right? And so that just gives us some some economies of scale that work better for us being a small company that we And are. flexibility. I, I don't, you know, need, a, like some of the column stills, you know, you tune it to a specific result and then you don't really have a lot of right, and that's what you're play ranking. with this. Right. I got... I got. I can play. There's stuff we can do, which, which is makes why it we fun. can produce brandies and you know gin and uh, mm. these other kinds of spirits as yeah. well. But, but only in Barney. You don't do those in Ron. Only because of the Ron is so busy with whiskey. I mean, yep. there's nothing that says we couldn't yes. do it in Ron, but we just don't. Yeah. Um, um, I was going to ask my question, and uh, I was thinking. And um, do your do your cuts change as you yes. play around with the plates? Yes. Um, Generally speaking, can you talk about how that changes? Uh, if you, you want know, to be specific, you can. It's, you well, generally... essentially, we go by flavor. So the heads cuts are, are pretty obvious. That's all mostly nosing. You can look at the temperature gauge, and it follows your nose pretty well, but it's all nosing. Mm -hmm. um, when those kind of, I call it like a nail polish remover smell. You know, when that peak of the acetaldehydes goes by, then I make that cut. And these guys make that cut. We've all got that down. Even I can make that Even cut. Even Scott can make that cut with his nose that didn't read what my nose read. But we all uh, we all make that cut. And then you, when you get to tails, it's really when during the training process it is, okay, this is the kind of what it tastes like, what it tastes like, what it tastes like. Okay, this is where the, we feel like the taste where we want that cut to be for the Roundstone product. Mm -hmm. For the Rebel product, for our Bottled and Bond product, it's definitely, um, you know, it's, it's a little more of a subjective kind of, okay, let's call it about here because the changes are a lot subtler because of the... the, the um, you know, when you talk about the kind of flavor peaks, as you add more reflux, your peaks get higher and sharper, kind of like a sharper bell curve, if you will. Whereas when you have less reflux, everything kind of broadens out like a big wide wave. And so to me, flavor wise, the, 
the uh, distillation with more reflex has a little bit more of a, okay, this is a fairly obvious point, this is where you cut it. Whereas when we're doing the rabble, it's no reflex, so everything is kind of broader and flatter, and the tail's cut becomes a little bit more of a, oh, it's in this neighborhood. Integrated in. I mean, some, some distillers will not even make a tail's cut right. if it's going to go into the barrel for a very long time. I know we've had conversations with the boys at Smooth Ambler, and uh, you know, in some cases, I think they choose not to even make a well, tail's cut. Well, and a column doesn't make right. a tail's cut right. or a head's cut. Yeah. They just right. go everything. But you know, if the stuff is going into the barrel for a long time, then and, and it goes, you know, and you just we've, let the wood take care of some of these things. We've done some, um, you know, some of those kind of test barrels where you're like, okay, we're not making any cuts. We're going to put it in there. And, you know, and honestly, personally, you know, all, a lot of this comes down to what I like, what, you know, where our flavors are that I want it to be. For the roundstone, I just don't feel like those kind of, of flavors are, are bringing what I want them to bring. Yeah to this whiskey. It's so the Roundstone, I don't feel like that's really a suitable whiskey to make in the kind of column still because the flavor profile, it it brings different things. And I, I, I just haven't been convinced yet. I mean, I've talked to a lot of really smart people who yeah. tell me, oh, but you know, and, and of course the economy is a scale. I mean, come on, let's talk about nine hours to do this it probably take three minutes in a column still yes. to do what yes. i'm doing all day long yeah but 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 and this is where i get kind of nerdish too is then you talk about what does a small producer offer what does a craft person offer we offer this kind of attention yes. this kind of difference that's a bright line difference most of your big producers are not doing this kind of thing because right. it doesn't make sense yeah Thanks to Becky for laying copious quantities of knowledge upon us. Mm-hmm. And whiskey <laughs> on you. <laughs> it was wonderful just sitting there tasting it. We're right next to the still. There's people coming out the tasting room. It's so much fun to be in a busy distillery. As I'm sitting there, I mentioned earlier pouring some 1974 Invergordon mm-hmm. for, for Scott. I also poured him the English Whiskey Company. Oh, nice. Sauterne. Yep. And I poured him the canvas. Oh, okay. So you've got regular straight up grain in a bourbon barrel, some single malt and Sauterne, and then some single grain finished in Muscatel. Right. You you see what I was doing there? Yes, I did. What I neglected to do, Joshua. Uh Uh-huh. Yes. That morning, we'd launched our Tamdu, finished in a rye cask. Yes. I forgot to take that through to him to taste. That wasn't smart. That was not smart in the slightest. (laughs) I will say this, however. Uh Uh-huh. He bought a bottle online anyway. Oh, look at him. (laughs) You know what? what I'll tell you. This is one thing that I've noticed. More often than not, when Scott is in some publication for being interviewed, there was one recently, I want to say it was the New York Times or Wall Street Journal, some big publication... Hmm. He wears his single cast nation shirt. He's <laughs> always representing, always representing. I love it. So grateful for it. Yep. Well, it, it's funny because on the day I showed up, he was wearing his single cast nation uh, work shirt. 
Oh, maybe he doesn't own any other shirts. Hadn't thought about that. <laughs> Hadn't thought we about need, that. We need to give him another shirt. What about a One Nation Under Whiskey shirt? Hey. Uh, and uh, as we were sitting there uh, tasting away, uh-huh. having a conversation, his phone rang and he said, oh, I have to take this one. And it was the New York Times oh. calling him to discuss the Trump tariffs or the the response the european response to trump's to tariffs. the trump tariffs yes and so he had been on uh, fox business maybe yes fox yep. local fox news he had he'd, he'd been on the fox channel uh-huh. uh, discussing the tariffs faux yep he now was being interviewed by the failing New York Times. <laughs> it's, it's so funny as as much as I as much as I don't think it. And I, you do this as well. You you've kind of tried to take ownership of the word bigly. You use bigly an awful lot. Do I? It, you do. And oh. And so now whenever I think New York Times, I, I can't help but think the failing New York Times. Which, That's hilarious. Which is why propaganda works, right? Right. You just repeat it, 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 and it just becomes part of the vernacular. That's it, how it exactly. works. Exactly. Oh, I know. It's crazy. So even even for you not believing in Bigly and me not believing in the failing New York Times, we still use it, right? We're still... Uh, still happens. Big, still crops up. Yeah, because it, it, it's just a big joke. Anyway. So I, I said to, to Scott... I know that this topic may very well have been pushed from the headlines by the time our podcast goes live. Yeah. And I said, I still want to get you on wax because given how often you and I deal with distillers from Kentucky and given how often you and I are in Kentucky, it's one of the questions that we have started asking Mm. just off the record. Right, just just asking our our producers, what are you seeing on the ground? Because one of the reasons for the European tariffs hitting Harley Davidson, hitting Levi Jeans, mm-hmm. hitting American bourbons, American whiskies, is that they're intended to go after iconic American brands. Yes, there's a and, reason for it. And, and as I'm about to add, go ahead. Yep. The voters in the states that produce those iconic American brands. Yes. And, and so we've been asking some of our friends in the industry, mm-hmm. what are you hearing in your state? Are you seeing some pushback? Are you hearing some unhappy people? And so it's, I think, important to get a small craft producer, whether we like the word craft or not, uh, Mm -hmm. a small producer of American whiskey who was banking on expanding their business across Europe, across the world, how these decisions are impacting them. And Scott is as articulate as they come when discussing these issues of tariffs. Mm. And so I, I gave him a chance and, and here he is. Uh, listen carefully to what Scott has to say here. I would be remiss given the climate and given that Josh and I are always hashtag MAGA. Mm-hmm. Um, here we are going to map up. We're going to make a, a podcast. A great, no, that doesn't work. Mapuga. <laughs> um, right. So, so given that we're always hashtag, hashtag MAGA, you, sir, 
uh, went into the belly of the beast and you spoke on the Fox News about these tariffs. Mm-hmm. Uh, as you and I sat in the tasting room today, you just happened to get a phone call from the New York Times to mm-hmm. discuss these tariffs. Yeah. Um, I'd be remiss if I didn't spend my time with you. <laughs> and, and who knows what these tariffs are going to look like Honestly, by the time this right. podcast goes live. Well, you know, it, 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 I would I generally stay out of politics uh, in most cases, you know, we, we sell whiskey and we sell it to Republicans and Democrats and Libertarians and all other wackos. Um, but the um, we're wackos ourselves, right? You know, my my background is uh, you know traditionally Republican and, and traditionally a free trade Republican. You know, so the old school kind of uh, mindset of you know we make the best products in America, and um, when given the opportunity to compete on equal fair playing grounds, you know for bourbon, for rye, for whatever, you know, then we do well. We can make a market for ourselves. And uh, and everything seems to be turned upside down now. Everything is just crazy. And so these tariffs have come into being. And I don't think, honestly, that our uh, administration is, you know, thinking it through, so to speak. I think they're kind of re- acting reactive and, and based on emotional um, considerations rather than, you know, thinking a strategy game. And, uh, and so we, we're stuck here now with these tariffs. And so what we're seeing is just as we have spent five years growing a European market for Catoctin Creek, um, and we're just now blossoming into making that happen, um, we're now seeing a 25% price tariff on our product. So a rather expensive bottle already at, say, 50 euro now is going for 62.50. And that's a big difference. I mean, yeah. it's a lot of money. And, and obviously it's a lot of money because that's why they chose to do that. Um, and so what are we going to do? You know, so as a company, we're going to tread water for a little while and hope that they go away soon, that maybe it was a negotiating tactic and maybe it will uh, dissolve away, you know, next week, next month, you know, in some kind of agreement. That's the optimistic viewpoint. The pessimistic viewpoint is this is going to be a long drag out slog. I think if that's the case, the stock market's going to get crushed, mm-hmm. and that'll start to put pressure on Congress to change. But then, you know, if it lasts 18 months, you know, we could see a complete sort of pause in the market overseas, and that's a shame because that was going to be a real growth area for us. Um, I know the big guys are just as worried, Jack Daniels, Brown Foreman, um, or Jim Beam, you know, they are right now um, stockpiling whiskey in their European warehouses to try to sort of minimize the expectation that this is going to happen. Um, so they're concerned as well. And, you know, I would point out probably that the big guys, you know, have a little bit more resources to handle this to weather the storm. You know, the big battleship in a hurricane doesn't get tossed around quite as much as us little dinghies do. And so that's going to be, you know, it's a real problem for us. Well, we don't have enough inventory and we don't have enough money to sort of send over, say, 2,000 cases and just, you know, yes. preemptively deal with this. No. Right. <laughs> and so that's, that's, that's how these things hurt us. And if it goes on for a long time, you know, I'm not saying that we're going to have to lay anybody off, but we're not going to be able to hire more people. And so this is anti-jobs growth. This is anti-small company. All the things that, you know, Republicans used to say they were for. Yeah. And so I'm really puzzled by it all. And I hope some real um, free trade Republicans, you know, find their find their nuts and start to come up hard against the president on these things and, and push back. Obviously, it's a 
an area to keep an eye on as we are recording here. We are currently experiencing the fallout of of Trump's tweet to Iran, hot on the heels of Trump's Helsinki meeting with Putin. Mm-hmm. Who knows if tariffs will remain? Who knows, as Scott just said there, if it was a bargaining ploy? Who knows where this is going to go? But I think what's hugely important here is when Scott and Becky talk about expanding their distillery, and that means going global, mm-hmm. and as well as opening new markets in the United States, they're hiring what they freely say, freely admit, families. It's not just the person standing in front of you, yeah. working a yeah, still, yeah. filling a cask, putting a label on a bottle. They're hiring families who they want to commit to long term. I really believe that when you add people, you add the, the, you know, people who are passionate about it, people who are excited to learn, and then go ahead and, you know, find them a, a, a way to really stay Not um, to be too involved. dramatic. I mean, we're building a family here, right? We're, we're building a family here, and uh, when we add people, we, we expect to add them for life. You right. Know, we want to keep people, and we want people to grow and right. find places to grow. And so if I'm, you know, saying, oh, well, it's crazy now, <laughs> you know, but in, in another year, yeah. then maybe we won't need you. I don't want to do that. That's not I don't where want we want to be, you know, you know. No, it's not where I want to be. I want to I bring people on and have them have opportunities to stay. When part of your growth is stunted... In this way, that's American families who are being hit. And Catoughton Creek is one example among millions in the United States that are being affected by very real policies. What these tariffs are doing, they are, like you had said, affecting families and affecting small businesses. Two things which are high on the list of things to protect by the Republican Party, sure, which is family and small business, sure, and and I I would also say you know that that is just a human value, yeah, well, right? Yeah. And and unfortunately, this could be affecting those two issues in 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 a very big way. But like you said, watch this space. We'll see. Who knows? Yeah, the hope is that some sense will reign, and. We can get back to business as normal. Now that we've walked it into that political (laughs) (laughs) cul-de-sac. Let's walk it out. (laughs) Sincere thanks to Scott and Becky. They always make me feel incredibly welcome. As much as we know, Becky is always busy and has to take time away. Uh, Scott, as he alluded to, has perfected his Mahjong game on the computer. So yes, he has. Yeah, I, I, I never feel as bad taking up his time. He is clearly front of the house, front facing, and it's always wonderful to spend time with him, pouring my whiskey, him pouring his whiskey. And uh-huh. I, I just had a blast. I really just enjoy them. And, and watching them since 2009 and, and cheering on their success since 2009 has been wonderful. And as much as we moved from the Washington Peninsula to Virginia, mm. and I, I really didn't want to leave the the, Washington, the Peninsula of Washington State, moving an hour and 45 minutes from Scott and Becky really kind of lessened the blow. And really being in a state that does a decent job of looking after its distillers 
has been yeah. has been pretty nice as well. And and when you make this long discussed trip to Virginia and, and we go and we interview more uh, and even you know, over into West Virginia and see Smooth Ambler and John Little over there, mm-hmm. you know, seeing what they're doing and seeing what they're building is magnificent, absolutely wonderful. And yeah, it's all right being in Virginia. We've got a good craft beer scene. We've got yeah. a good distilling scene couple hours from DC. Yeah, it's all right. I yeah. don't say that every day, but it's all right. <laughs> you know, I, I was and just Virginia thinking, pizza yeah. is the bomb. Uh, I'm sorry, you, you broke up a little <laughs> bit there. Um, I'm sure that that's not going to come through in the recording. Uh, <laughs> we have one place that's, that makes pretty damn good pizza. Don't you have seven pizza restaurants in your town? Eight. In a town of oh, 8,000. Oh. Okay. Do you have any Italians that live in your town? No. <laughs> that, that's trouble. That's trouble <laughs> actually, we right do. There. No, actually, we do. We do. I'm sorry. We do. We do. We do. We do. One. You have a token, a token eye towel? Yep. 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 <laughs> Brother and sister. And, uh, and they own one of the pizza places. Um, what was I going to say? News? Oh. Yeah. No. Nah. You're going to say something nice about Scott and Becky. I guarantee you. I remember... The very first time I met Scott Harris. Okay. It was 2011 or 12, <laughs> probably 2011. And it was at a whiskey festival. It wasn't Whiskey Fest. It may have been Whiskey Live or the Whiskey Cruise. That part of it is, is a bit uh, rusty for me. But... <laughs> I was walking by their table, and our mutual friend, uh, Mark Gillespie, was at his table and drinking their gin, which to this date is, is one of my favorite gins. Yeah, yeah, we haven't even talked about um, that once in this entire podcast. No, it, we haven't. And uh, maybe we can have a conversation with Chad about their gin sometime. That'd be nice. Anyway... Um, I remember Mark just stopping me. I think he grabbed my arm and he said, he said, Joshua, have you tried this gin yet? I said, no, I, yeah, gin was never something that I was looking for. And, and at that time I was 100% focused on malt whiskey and nothing else. So it was all of the Scotch whiskey producers, the Japanese whiskey producers and so on. And so Mark said, just stop what you're doing and try this. And, <laughs> And I was I was really blown away. The the flavors just came together so well. The texture has that signature Catoctin Creek really rich texture mm-hmm. to Absolutely. it, which carried through in the gin, which which I quite yeah, liked. The watershed. So, yep. Yep. Yeah, that was when I realized that rye foundation gins are absolutely in my wheelhouse. Yeah, I I don't know if at that time that was my first Rye Foundation gin or, or what? Uh, again, gin is not typically my thing, but uh, bag, I, I fell in love with it. Say. Oh, is it yeah. bag? Yeah, gin is not my bag, baby. I think that's what all the, all oh, the teenagers are saying. Oh, gin's not my bag. <laughs> groovy, groovy. Cool. Hey, you got it. You, um, you know what you're doing. Yeah, you are. <laughs> anyway, anyway, anyway. So, yeah, just that popped in my mind. I want to get out there. Before we get to Scott and Becky's misconceptions, because we do have two really good misconceptions from them, do we have any news to get to? 
yeah, just a, a very quick follow-up on Whiskey Jubilee New York Festival Bottling. Do we need to call the paperboy over again? Always. All right. Hey, Jimmy, <laughs> give, give me a pizza with nothing. That's not Jimmy, that's Johnny. <laughs> oh, Johnny. <laughs> so what do, what do we have to say about New York City Whiskey Jubilee? You mean this past New York City Whiskey Jubilee? The one that happened? Yes, sir. The one that happened last month. So what do you want to tell us? The, the whiskey has been in bottle with labels mm. in Kentucky mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. since the day of the Jubilee. That is very true. We have been yes. releasing and releasing. I mentioned earlier, selling out in 15 minutes, our Stones of Sten Ness collaborative release yeah. with with yep. Hello from the Magic Tavern. And mm-hmm. nearly in classic Jason style said, in collaboration with One Nation Under Whiskey, but that's no right. Um, that collaboration, <laughs> uh, the Stones of Sten Ness, yeah, sold out in 15 minutes. And now we are in the business of sending 300 bottles across the United States. to Which takes time. It takes a lot of time. And so we cannot release the Whiskey Jubilee New York City Festival bottling until we get Stones of Sten Ness cleared out. So we're thinking we will launch sales the first week of August. And then we should have the slate cleared enough that we can begin mm-hmm. shipping the Whiskey Jubilee NYC bottle the middle of August. And for those people uh, who have been interested in this bottling, uh, good news is these will be two per person rather than one yeah. per person. Yeah, and I still have the sign-up sheet from the night of the Jubilee, and so anybody who's on that sheet is guaranteed their bottles. Yeah. They have not missed anything. Some people might say, well, why are you going to do two bottles per person rather than one bottle per person? Well, we have just a little bit more liquid here because this is a marriage of of two casks. So a little bit more juice to go around. And um, we would just rather sell it two per person. So there you go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There are There are very real problems when we limit releases to one per person. I hate selling one per person for a host of reasons for a host of reasons but in the interest of fairness we have decided to make some releases one per person this one special release for attendees of the jubilee two per person and we can get it shipped over a couple of weeks all going according to plan Mm -hmm. And we uh, always keep some of the Jubilee bottlings to the side for single cast nation members. So you can watch our Facebook group page. Uh, There will likely be an email going out as well. Uh, So just keep your eyes open and your ears peeled. Is that how that's exactly correct, Joshua? Yeah, good, 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 good. You did not say anything incorrect there. So I know that we have some misconceptions that we've got to get to, and I'm glad we have them because I've been holding on to a misconception on those on the on that one chance where we have a guest that doesn't have a mis a misconception. <laughs> Everybody I, has a misconception. Um, I have I have one that is a misconception slash grind my gears. So we'll have to do that in another checks day. out. I little teaser. I also was sure to say to to Scott and Becky. We've already discussed 
the misconceptions surrounding age in our interview. Yes. And you and I have discussed it many times on our podcast. And we had a go around earlier in this episode. And so I said, I know that's the number one for so many people. Give me another one. And so each of them gave me something that wasn't about age, even though age remained, the misconception around age remained to the forefront of their minds. Well, it makes sense, right? Because they're releasing young whiskey. It's a constant, constant battle for them. I really liked Becky's misconception because I think it's a misconception that couldn't come from Scott, let's put it that way. <laughs> but it's it's a really wonderful perspective. Yeah. Does this mean we're leading with Becky? Yes. Here's Becky's misconception. There is a certain tribe of people that see whiskey as primarily being a man's drink, and women that drink it are somehow, I don't know, ballsy or, you know, I, I can't... Masculine. Uh, or something, where it's an oddball scenario to be a woman who drinks whiskey, that you, should, you know, that women drink wine, women drink um, fruity cocktails, and yet, and yet, the more I'm out here, the more I'm out talking to women, the more I'm educating women on flavor, I think that there has to be um, kind of the, a, a rethinking of that, that the, the whiskey is this amazing palette with all these colors of flavor on it. You can find different colors of flavor in scotch alone. You can find different colors of flavor in bourbon. You can find those same colors of flavor in rye, which is what, you know, one of the things we're talking about. As you get more and more rye producers creating original ryes, you start to see that same um, panoply of, of, of different kinds of flavors. And I think that Women bring something different to the table when they are both tasting whiskey and when they are um, creating whiskey. And I think that having women be in the conversation when you're doing selection of flavors and also when you're talking about what whiskeys taste like. Um, I like to tell women, don't be afraid to say what you think it tastes like because your experience is entirely different than someone else's, whether it be another woman or a man. Your, your own body reacts with these flavors to create these things. When we do tastings in our distillery here, we have, honestly, we taste at low proof so that we can taste a lot of samples. So it's maybe uh, at, at 40 proof, right? We're tasting a number of samples so that we can do that. Most of the guys can't tell the difference. We had one of my production guys would call it the dirty water test because he hated it. He was like, they all taste the same. And yet, Addie and myself, we were like talking about the kinds of flavors and picking those things out and rating and creating ratings for those so that we can talk about them when it's time they come out of the barrel and relate those ratings to it. So, you know, women have a lot to bring to whiskey discussions. And I think that I tell women all the time, don't be shy about giving your opinion because you bring something really important to the table when people talk about whiskey. So rather than mansplain everything that Becky just said to you, <laughs> let's leave it exactly as Becky said it. Pivot over to Scott. One of the things that we noticed when we first started pouring our rye whiskey is people would tell us repeatedly 
this doesn't taste like rye whiskey. And we would say, I think even you said that, and, uh, and, and we would say, you know, somewhat defensively even, well, how can it not? It's 100% rye. And what we've learned since then is that, you know, even today in the market, probably 80% of the rye that's out there is all made at one single place. Sure, sure. Right? In the middle of America. Um, and it, it shows up in many, many different bottles across the nation, right? And so it's perfectly fine stuff, but it's all coming from one place that uses one set of farms and has one distillation profile, and it all tastes the same. And so what people had started to think is, well, I've tasted all these different producers and all these different bottles, and they all taste the same way, so that's what rye tastes like. 100%. And what we have now learned is that, no, you have tasted a single rye from Indiana, you know, with those farms that surround that, that place. Um, but now as we start to see other craft producers who are doing it all grain to glass on site, like we are, you know, we're using four different grain sources from Virginia and surrounding areas, and that is showing up in the flavor of our spirit that is then fermented and distilled by Becky Harris and her team. So that's a certain style that's happening here repeatedly and then aged in our environment and then and then bottled and, and sent out. So I think what you're seeing is, I hate to use the word terroir because it, it it's overused, but it describes the stuff from a place, right? That's what we're talking about here. So we're tasting what a Virginia rye tastes like and that's different from an Indiana rye. Yes. And thank goodness, you know, because you want variety, right? Neither is bad, neither is good, but there's difference there. And now as we're seeing other places, you know, in New York, in South Carolina, in, you know, Arizona, I saw one, um, those are also producing and they taste quite different as well. And thank God for that. So with all of that in the bag, Joshua, and with another sincere thanks going out to Scott and Becky and Chad, of course, uh, for all of his listenershipness, clearly a word, and and his checks out and his commitment to getting me to uh-huh. drive the hour and forty five minutes up the road to go and see my friends Scott and Becky at Catalton Creek. I say thank you all, and I really appreciate their time. It's a big deal. But yeah. before we close out today, you need to let oh. our listeners know how to reach out to us, those who don't already know, uh-huh. and then we'll call it a day. Okay. Now don't hit the fast forward button here because you need to hear this because you may want to get in touch with us. You may have some burning questions or burning in your, in the genital regions that you you want to discuss. And so in order to do that, you need a way in which to communicate. And so this is what I tell you, dear listener, listeners, you can reach out to us by email questions at one nation under whiskey. You could tweet at us. Uh, at One Nation Whiskey. You can Instagram message us at One Nation Under Whiskey or just go to Facebook.com, go into the search bar and look for One Nation Under Whiskey and you'll find our group page. There's also a business page, but go to the group page, ask some questions there. Fine and dandy. And then finally, finally, um, we would really like to see some of your comments on iTunes. You know, what do you think about the podcast? Do you like it? Is it worth five stars? Is it worth four stars? Is it worth six? But they won't give you the six, so you settle for five. It's whatever it takes. Just give us some stars. We'll be happy. It helps other people to find us. If you want to tell your and mom, your dad, your sister. that's 45 seconds. So if they hit the 15-second fast-forward button three times... 
they're right back here with me speaking to them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's amazing. Uh, but yeah, well reach out to us. Well. That's for, for damn sure. And uh, yeah, definitely, if you could give us one of those ratings on iTunes, that would be much appreciated. Joshua, it's been lovely to see you. I've barely seen you through the month of July. I've been on vacation. I know. I've been under surgery. I've been in recovery. And uh, you know what, though? In, I'm, yeah. I'm going to see you yes, soon. Yes, you are. What is it going to be? Yeah. Five days after this episode drops, you and I will be in Kentucky getting up to some Kentucky. of our usual mischief. Mm-hmm. Though meeting with some new people, so I'm very happy to uh, to do that. Yeah, at least a couple of episodes will come out of that trip yep. and maybe something in a bottle, but we'll see. Oh, Mr. Tease. <laughs> I pay the fool who doesn't get that tease. <laughs> and on that bombshell, Joshua, I will see you in Kentucky. And I will also see you in Kentucky. Chin chin. Cheers. Cheers. Chad very quickly because okay. I didn't tell him I was here today and he's thoroughly pissed off at me oh. and, he's a, and he's a good listener of the podcast. I will so. just simply say this, that <laughs> it was on the calendar, so it was well known to the company <laughs> that you were going to be here. So. Oh, <laughs> I saw yes. it. I saw it. Yes. I asked you about it yesterday. Yes. Oh. Uh, and in Chad's defense, so I don't want to piss him off, <laughs> <laughs> he has been, he has had quite a virus this week. I don't think he's been feeling well. Okay. And allergies. Allergies okay. are miserable. The guy sounded rough on the phone but, so. oh, but, but Chad is magnificent and he writes in and, and we've been saying to Chad for, for years we've had the podcast 18 months um, <laughs> we're going to get to Catoctin Creek we're going to get to Catoctin Creek okay Catoctin Creek I'm coming back All right. be great awesome. to see here we are we're here yeah, and we're still here yeah. first time caller been listening a long time <laughs> oh show's great but, but Chad would write in and then I'd see him in Atlanta sometimes and he would say to me like I'm driving listening to the podcast and I feel like I'm having a conversation with you guys. Yeah. And so we awesome. made sure to then say hi to him. And he came to him. Hi, Chad. Hey, Chad. Hi, Steve. Watch out. Watch out. Stay in your lane. Uh, <laughs>